0: Hello and welcome to Series 3 of Greenbelt's Somewhere to Believe in podcast.
1: In this series, a nun, a rabbi, a Muslim convert, a Lutheran firebrand, a humanist, an American liberation theologian, a retired Met Police officer and an LGBTQ priest all walk into a bar.
0: You know they always say don't talk about religion or politics. Well, funny that, because that's what we like to talk about most at Greenbelt. Perhaps that makes us into
1: Find out and join us in this series of no holds barred conversations with extraordinary people who are prepared to wear their hearts on their rolled up sleeves for whom faith isn't personal, who get stuck in because of what they believe. Hi, Catherine. Morning, Paul. Are you watching plenty of football? There's this football tournament on. I don't know if you've heard about it.
0: It's coming home. (laughs) (laughs)
1: It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> are you excited Catherine
0: I I do get caught up a few times in football um, I get caught up in the World Cup and I, and I have got caught up a little bit in the Euros not really about the football I think it's just like I get caught up in the excitement of it
1: especially when we can't be at festivals or mass gatherings and events you know we've got to have something in our lives haven't we <laughs> to get <laughs> yeah. the juices flowing exactly <laughs> I must confess I've been watching a little bit too much football, um, but, you know, it'll be over soon and then it won't be coming around for another <laughs> two years or whatever.
0: I didn't know you were a football supporter.
1: Well, I used to be when I was younger. I think as I've grown older, I've become less and less and less a football supporter for a whole heap of different reasons. But, yeah, when it comes to the big tournaments, I do like to watch along.
0: I saw a footballer bite another footballer on the back did you see that Gabe?
1: There every now and again is a bit of biting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen it was so intentional as well and they got it on camera and just thought what?
1: (laughs) I think you know the sight of grown men biting each other is a little bit disturbing. We're Um,
0: adults (laughs) I thought that stopped when we were we've stopped teething.
1: (laughs) One of my most enduring memories of picking up uh, my boy's from playgroup one morning was to be told b- to be greeted at the door by one of the carers to say oh i'm afraid um i'm afraid uh, your boy has bitten another child and you're just mortified but you know fancy if you're like uh, the mother of an international football player and you're told <laughs> i'm afraid your boy has has bitten the uh, the center forward <laughs> You're quite caught up and interested in the whole Britney Spears uh, story right now, and that's um, hashtag Free Britney. Hashtag Free Britney. She's been speaking in court, I think, for the first time directly into her case. What what can you tell us, Catherine?
0: She's been under a conservatorship since 2008, which means that her father has control over her uh, her life, really, her decisions, her finances. and for the first time ever, she's spoken out in court and everybody's been waiting for this moment of her to speak out in court.
1: What did she say, Catherine?
0: She said that she wants the conservatorship to end. She said that it's caused more harm than good. She said she deserves a life and she wants a few years off and not to have to work and, and that the people around her need to be reminded that they work for her. Um Because it's a really weird thing, you know, when you think about having to have somebody take control over your life because you're seen as not able to be able to do so, that's understandable. But I think it's the way that she's also been made to work during this time and make a lot of money and take up um, things like a stint in Vegas doing her show for a few years there a big show making millions and millions of pounds and if if she's able to work in that kind of capacity then why is she not able to make decisions about her life
1: because it's a very unusual thing for a young active able artist who like you say is clearly able to work and perform still be amazing to be subject of what they call in America a conservatorship because Ordinarily, those arrangements are where you need to care for an elderly relative who has lost their mental or physical faculties and and needs support to look after their affairs. It feels really weird that it's being used in, in this context, sort of almost sinister, doesn't it?
0: it does it, and when you team that with the continuous um, social media posts that are happening and the continuous work that is happening it's a really odd uncomfortable thing to have sitting side by side it doesn't seem like she's 100% happy and good which she's also come out and said now she's come out and said i am not happy i am depressed i am struggling mm. but i'm being made to do this these things and i think one of the, one of the things that people are really finding difficult was that she talked about the fact that she wants to get married and she wants to have a child and that she has this IUD in her arm which is stopping her from getting pregnant and she's not allowed to take it out and so there's a real question there about women's decisions about what they do with their own body because clearly she isn't able to make decisions on her own reproductive system which is a theme in America (laughs)
1: there's been a lot of um stuff going on a lot of a lot more heartache since the extension of step four festivals have been cancelling kendall calling black deer but also there's a concern isn't there that there has been this um events research program going on that has been testing out various uh, events but those results aren't being shared or published are they Catherine?
0: No. So since May, um, there has been some pilot events where things have been tested around social distancing at events, mask wearing at events, being outside events, being inside events with people getting tested before the events and people getting tested afterwards. And to see um, it was to help us with our events this summer, with our planning and what mitigations we might need to be taking and what things we need to be thinking about. And we were waiting for the events, the results of that to be published just before the June 21st deadline. Regardless of what happened to that deadline, we assumed and were told that those results were going to be published because they help in people's planning. Whether, we, whether that delay, that 21st deadline got delayed by four weeks, people still need those results to help with their planning. But those results have not been published.
1: What what can you say, what can we say about the results of those tests? Because we know the results because you know we're we're party to them.
0: The results show that especially with outdoor events, that there is no significant increase in the risk of um, passing on COVID. That um, You know, a few people tested positive, but it wasn't any different to what would normally be people that would normally be testing positive in those areas and that kind of amount of people. Um, So they were really positive and we were very positive about it. And potentially one of the reasons why they're not being released is because they do not align with the government's optics about needing to push back that deadline. They would kind of counter that. They would bring up questions, they would confuse people.
1: There needs to be a very strong, a very coherent narrative and response around the pandemic uh, in order that we come through it as a community together. At the same time, there needs to be an openness and a truthfulness about things. It's getting that balance right.
0: Yeah, on the one hand, we're facing something unprecedented and we need to all act in the common good. There is the, also in that moment, there is the potential for us to be controlled at, in a way that is uncomfortable and shouldn't be happening in a democratic society, which is to hold back information and to be have our fears played with, have our emotions played with, in order to get us to act a certain way.
1: Anyway, on that bombshell... Let's um let's introduce our guest. Um who are we talking to this week on the podcast, Catherine?
0: Well, this week we're talking to Umpo Tutu. Um she has been to the festival before a few years ago. We think about 2014, 2015.
1: On her website, she describes herself as an artist, a speaker and a writer. She's come up through the church as an ordained priest and she's served in the States and back in her home country of of South Africa as a priest and now lives with her partner in Holland. She's also worked closely with her father Desmond Tutu uh, over very many years helping him to manage the uh, Desmond and Leah Tutu Foundation which does all sorts of amazing good work in South Africa and beyond um, and she still has very close links uh, with the work of the foundation. Umpo, it's great to to speak with you. Where, where are we speaking to you? Where are you joining us from today?
2: Uh, I'm in Amselfane in the Netherlands. Yeah, I live here um, most of the year, but I still have a home in Cape Town.
0: How has the, um, the last year for you been um, during the whole pandemic, um, you know, maybe not being able to travel as much as you normally would?
2: Uh, not travelled at all. Um, I came back from... Cape Town in March, um, so just right before um, lockdown and um, I haven't left the country since. Uh, It's been an an incredible year. I am um, so privileged to live in a country and in a home where I feel safe and Um, have access to all the uh, mod cons Um, so um, even though my my son was having to do school remotely um, he's a kid with a laptop in his own room Um, what has been really challenging has has been not being able to get back to South Africa not not seeing my my parents not seeing my daughter and my grandchildren, um, or not being able to visit with them. I mean, with uh, they've been deaths, um, friends, family members, um, both COVID and non-COVID deaths, and um, on the one side has been the the grief of not being able to go to to their funerals, and on the other side has been the relief of you know, kind of the video links of people whose funerals who I I might not have been able to attend anyway. Um, and at the beginning of lockdown, um, I did I I was doing a, a lot of public speaking and um, all of that kind of vaporized. Um, and then um, as as the lockdowns progressed. Um, more and more organizations decided that they could take their conferences or their activities online, which had the incredible benefit of meaning that a lot of people who live in, in less well-resourced places, were able to participate in conferences that just ordinarily would have been out of their reach and out of their budgets. So um, it's been a real mixed bag, but I think um, apart from feeling incredibly homesick, I still kind of the, the other side of it is feeling incredibly grateful.
1: You describe being, you know, deeply homesick um, for South Africa, obviously friends and family, but could you tell us a little bit more about what it means to be South African, to have, you know, um, for that to be your country of heritage? How does that travel with you?
2: Yeah, it, it travels bone deep. Um, they you know i i think my i i self identify first as as being south african and you know lay claim to all of that um cultural heritage and history um and to my my strand in the um in the south african story that's a um a very colorful strand i guess is 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 what i would say is, um, south african history is my history and um the the experience of apartheid and of um anti apartheid struggle and of um euphoria um, with the elections and disappointment in in the succeeding years, and in what has felt um, wasted of you know our freedom dividend, maybe you would call it um, that that there, there's a lot that kind of went to waste. Um, and got uh, grabbed up in the greed. We had a small piece of maybe arrogance. Um, we, We had been tried by fire. But even as we were being tested by fire, we were probably some of the most prayed for people on earth. You know, one doesn't really know all of the fruits of so much prayer, Um, other than that it brought us freedom. You know, once we had gained freedom from apartheid, from the um, racism that was on the books, then, you know, I, I think both that the world community thought, okay, well, we're done now and we can move on because that prayer is no longer necessary and let's turn our attention somewhere else. And for ourselves as well, that we had some vision of democracy as being something like a spectator sport. You buy your ticket, so you, you know, you make your votes, so you've You've paid for your ticket and then um, and then the democracy is supposed to kind of run itself and that there's that we hadn't realized the necessity for vigilance, that the fact that you voted those people in doesn't mean that they are always going to be acting in your best interests. Um, and that's, uh, that's been a hard lesson to, to, to learn and to take in.
0: Paul's a little bit older than me and so I couldn't tell <laughs> 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 he, re- he remembers the time of um, the global anti-apartheid movement and I, and, I, and I don't at all you know I, I've heard it afterwards as, as a story and kind of a surface level story and I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about your experience of living in South Africa through that time it's impossible
2: to convey how all-encompassing the experience of living in under apartheid was. It's impossible to convey the sense of um, tension with with which one lived constantly. I I remember um, as a teenager we we lived in Soweto. Um, and my parents had decided that they were never going to have their children educated under the Bantu Education System, and so my brother, my sisters, and I went to boarding school in Swaziland. And I remember vividly on on one occasion um, we had driven from Johannesburg. To Mbaban, where the, where the um, where where our high school was, and you cross the border from South Africa into Swaziland, and I just remember the the palpable sense of relief. Um, And I hadn't realized the tension and the anxiety until I experienced the relief of not being constantly on watch, constantly wary, constantly afraid. As black people, you had to carry uh, what we called a dompas. It was really an internal passport that you had to carry with you at all times it was described as your book of life Um, and from the age of 16 you were required to carry this document and this document had in it a stamp for where you were allowed to work. If you were employed, it had a stamp that said that you were employed and what your employer's name was and so on and so forth, and that you had the right to be in an urban area because you were employed by a white employer. If you had lived in an urban area consistently for 10 years, working for the same employer, without interruption over those 10 years, you could be eligible for what was called a ten-one a which meant that you were allowed to continue to reside in that urban area, you know, whether, whether or not you were fully employed. But that meant that the vast majority of people didn't have the right to live in an urban area. And so there were past law arrests in Every day, every time you saw the police coming, it was uh, one flavor of terror or another. After 1976, after the Soweto uprisings, which were the the, the um, high school student-led uprisings in 1976, um, Soweto became kind of an encampment with um, with armoured personnel carriers going up and down the streets um, almost constantly for a couple of years beyond that. Um, The design of South African townships was such that um, all of the black townships had a limited number ways of ingress and and exit and at each entry or exit point there was either a police station or a military base um so that that it was possible for the government to lock down so it was really a, i mean it was a ghetto like the warsaw ghetto was a ghetto it was a, you know possible to be locked down and and um, the, you know so that you couldn't go in and out of the of the Township, or in and out of the city, um, and you'll see still as vestiges of apartheid. The roads in the black townships are really wide, um, and they they're wide and were generally well paved, um, so that arm, armored personnel vehicles, like those you know, big armored personnel vehicles, could traverse the streets easily. Um, and you can see the difference. So when you looked, at, you know, for instance, in in Cape Town, in what were formerly the white areas, the streets are really narrow um, because there was no no notion that you'd have to bring a military force into the into the white areas. The services. Um, in, in the townships um, were, in black townships were non-existent. For virtually all goods and services, you would have to leave the township. So to do your grocery shopping. So if you wanted to do major grocery shopping, that would have to be done in the white areas because grocery stores didn't exist in, in the black townships. When we When we tell it now, um, it seems like a fairy tale, uh, you know, like what? How, how could this ever happen? How could it be? Um, and yet it's absolutely the reality of life for millions of black South Africans. It was the reality of life for decades.
1: Because of that sort of sense that you describe of always being on guard, always being wary, has that... Has that made you sort of like super vigilant or aware of wherever you see in life and in your experience? Uh, Have you almost got like a radar that picks up the signs of where people are being, in a sense, segregated, oppressed, discriminated against because of I'm just trying to wonder, you know, does that give you something internally that is almost like a warning system for where for spotting those similarities and those inhuman signs in the rest of your life in the rest of the world
2: my vigilance is is probably so in that it is natural it's very well how would you how would you not notice yeah i guess there is a kind of awareness but i i think the lack of awareness is actually the privilege Um, it's you know i don't i don't know because i don't have to know um and i think you know south africa was kind of an extreme example um so you know for for decades um the the south african government had the, the the physical architecture of apartheid was that the black townships were cordoned off um, were, away from the main thoroughfares, so you had to be going there to get there and at the entrance to at each entrance to a black township there was a big board that said you know private road entrance to such and such a township and you have to have an authorization to go there the world cup in 2010 um when when south africa hosted the world cup there were people from outside South Africa who went into the townships before white South Africans had gone there. They were like, you know, I've never been here, never been to Soweto, live 30 kilometers away, have absolutely never been there, don't know what it looks like. And and that is the privilege of, you know, the government has so set it up for you that you don't have to know. Um, you, don't, you don't have to know how other people live and in fact you know, we've made it illegal for you to know how the vast majority of the people in your country are living um, and that, that the, the comforts with which you live uh, come at the expense of their poverty. But you don't know that they're poor because you never have to see it.
0: There's a few, um, you know, things that you said there that I can recognize in other places that are still kind of alive and happening today. So I've been to Palestine a few times and I remember the signs as you're going into Palestine that like read exactly as you described it you know you you do not you are not able to come in here without requirements or you know turn back and how the services differ from Israel to Palestine there's some similarities there.
1: You know having grown up against that backdrop and being a part of that that struggle and as you said earlier on having won that freedom Mm -hmm. um, you were then quite candid about the way that that freedom might have played out, and mm-hmm. the way that that blessing might have been somewhat mixed, and in the midst of that, you found yourself being called, and you know, being come becoming a priest as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that phase of your of your life and your journey, sort of post-apartheid, as it were?
2: I wasn't really sure that I wanted to be a priest. I mean, I felt called, but <laughs> I, I wasn't sure that this was what I wanted. You know, I felt, yeah, okay, I have to explore this, but if the answer is no, that's fine with me. Um, I can find something else to do. Um, I went through the process in the, in, in the Diocese of Western Massachusetts. Um, I went to seminary at the Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge. I spent a year at the uh, seminary, the the College of the Transfiguration, which is the Anglican Provincial Seminary in South Africa, um, came back, was ordained, spent a year, uh, spent two years at Christ Church in Alexandria, Virginia, and then um, at um, Holy Comforter in, in Washington, D.C., and stayed canonically resident in Washington, D.C., moved back to South Africa in 2011 um, to take up the leadership of the Desmond and Leotuti Tutu Legacy Foundation and served under license there in the Diocese of Saldana Bay until I got um, married um, to Marceline, and that opened a whole new lovely can of worms.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about that that passage in your life and what that was like to live through?
2: My the my lovely can of worms with Marceline?
1: Yeah the can of Um, worms. (laughs)
2: Um yeah um I met and fell in love with Marceline who um was Professor at the Frey University in, in, in Amsterdam. She had been traveling in, in South Africa with a group of professors. I met her, we stayed in touch. We actually we had been doing some work together and we fell, and then we fell in love. Um, we'd been doing some work together on um, treatment adherence um, for children with HIV and AIDS um, decided to get married asked permission from my bishop, who's uh, the Episcopal Bishop in in Washington, which was fine. Um, And and as a courtesy to the Bishop of Saldana Bay under whom I was, who had licensed me to serve um, in his diocese, I um, informed him um, that that I was planning to marry, and that I was planning to marry Marceline, and that Marceline was a woman, um, and I didn't want to step on his or anyone else's toes, and, you know, was there something I should do? He, as it happened, um, w- would have been classified as colored under the the apartheid regime. He had fallen in love with a white woman. They had um, had to leave the country to marry and had lived outside South Africa um, for several years until the end of the apartheid regime, and at which point he had been able to come back. To serve to minister in South Africa um, with his wife, he supported me, but you know, recognized that um, this is the South African church, and and thank you for telling me, and there's nothing I need to do right now. But just after Marceline and I married, there was a synod, provincial synod, a synod of bishops, um, and. I gather I was uh my marriage was very much a topic for the conversation and, and the bishop was was um told that he was required to withdraw my license and so he he came to see me which was really wonderfully pastoral of him um and I said that I you know I knew that he was going to have to ask for my license back. And I said, but rather than you know have you ask for it, I'm going I want to give it to you. His response was that, you know, with the understanding that it was a a temporary event and that he he would work to um, to see that this injustice um, wouldn't continue and he has um he's been true to his word he he has really been working on the issue of full inclusion for um all God's people in all aspects of the life of the church
0: for my clarification is there's there seems to be and i don't know whether it's a one size fits all but that that there isn't a problem if a member of the congregation can be Gay, but that somebody serving in the ministry can't be married to somebody of the same sex. Is that
2: is that right? It's not one size fits all, and it very much depends on um, on where one is. So in South Africa, the understanding is that if one is um, not heterosexual. Um, Then one is required to be celibate. It seems like a kind of a, a
1: dubious welcome to be told that you're welcome, but. I guess that was quite painful having to, having had the joy of falling in love and being married, and then being faced with the prospect of realizing or recognizing that you couldn't actually sort of do or be who you fully wanted to be. In South Africa at that time, is that a a pain that you still carry, or have you been able to move on and accept that's just the way things are? And I can I can get on. I can. There's still plenty that I can do.
2: Oh, both and uh, not either. Or there's yes. There's still um, incredible pain, and there is still. Plenty that I can do at the time. I was still serving um, as the executive director of the Desmond Tutu Legacy Foundation, and that was my primary ministry. And so, you know, my ministry in the church at that time wasn't wasn't my primary uh, ministry, and um, and yet it was still an, um, a searing pain. Because as as Anglicans, we say our priesthood is ontological. When one is priesthood, one becomes something different. Um, it's like, you know, being baptized. When you are baptized, you're not the same as you were before. Something different. Um, essential about who you are and about your identity has changed you have a new identity in Christ as a priest you have a new role and a new identity in Christ as a married person you have a new role and a new identity in Christ uh you know it's not kind of a you put it on and you take it off um it is uh this is who you become and and so it feels like being asked to engage in a perpetual lie to say well no actually yeah when i'm here i'm not a priest um because i am a priest <laughs> that you know that is um an essential part of my identity i am a priest i am a woman i am a mother i am married yeah All of those are essential parts of my identity.
0: I was reading a little bit about um, whose footsteps you follow in, and you were talking about how you followed a lot in your mother's footsteps and her ways of um, doing, I think you called it kitchen table ministry, Mm -hmm. which I really liked. And you Mm -hmm. talk a lot about small acts of kindness, a lot of Mm -hmm. small acts of kindness. Um, Could you talk to me a little bit about that?
2: Well, two things. I think both of my parents had their own ministries. My father's was an ordained ministry, my mother's not, but no less a ministry for being not ordained. I think she has taken very seriously the royal priesthood of all believers, and um, that is what we are all baptized into is the the royal priesthood of all believers and that is that is the the first and most transformational ministry in which we are all involved. My mother did a lot of work with domestic workers and their employers and at the time um, at the time that my mother was involved with with domestic workers, domestic Workers were the largest population of women who worked in South Africa, um, and yet domestic work wasn't considered work under under the apartheid law. and, and My mother um, formed the first union of domestic workers um, in South Africa, um, and you know there's now there's a subsequent union of domestic workers that that has been born later, but she was the first one to unionize domestic workers um, so that they could demand rights as a, as a group. Um, St. Francis says, uh, you know, uh, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that, that I think that, that my parents feel to me to have taken to heart I think that has been one of the things that has, has made my faith journey feel like a worthwhile journey. You know, I've had um some living examples to to look at and to see, okay, well how does how does faith decide which way you go when the path di- when the paths
1: diverge. Is there also a sense in which, you know, you described your mother having established the first trade union for domestic workers in South Africa. And then obviously your father has been incredibly knitted into the the political story of South Africa. Is there a way that their faith, that your faith is completely a political thing, a societal thing, as well as a, it's not just a personal system? It's not just a personal spirituality. It seems to me that it's very, very very political, is that right?
2: In a way, there's no such thing as a personal faith. If it's about you, if it's all about you, then it's not Christianity, it's something else. Christianity is, by its very nature, all about us. How do we live together? The gospel doesn't tell us that at the end of time, when Christ comes and sits on the throne of judgment, that the questions that were are going to get asked are well, you know, how many times a day did you pray actually, and were you wearing the right liturgical color, and did you go to the service, and did you fall asleep during the sermon? Those, those, actually, I. I don't know. I mean maybe I'm not seeing it right, but I never noticed those in any of the gospel accounts. The questions were, did you feed the hungry? Did you visit the prisoners? Did you care for the sick? Did you give water to those who were thirsty? That, you know, that's what our faith is about. Our faith isn't about, you know, <laughs> did you get to feel virtuous? No, our faith is about, did you did you care for the people around you?
0: It's almost like you've kind of simplified what faith is to people and almost simplified the choice that you have. I think that I've read on your website, if mm-hmm. if you are confused about what to do, you do the most loving thing.
2: We need to be reminded over and over again that we are all each other's concern. We keep thinking that there is a silo I can step into in which I will be safe. I will be saved. Actually, your salvation, your health, your well-being depends not only on you, but on the people next to you. It depends on you, caring about those around you and those around you caring for you i mean we keep looking at the the way we're ravaging this planet thinking that i can have my whatever it is i can have all of my comforts even knowing that all of my comforts come at the expense of the natural environment, and I think that I can keep doing this over and over and over again, and that it's never going to it's never going to come and bite me. It, it's never going to have an impact on me. I don't I don't have to know. It's exactly like that, um, a ghetto. I don't. I don't have to know how black people live, um, because that has been cordoned away from me. Um, I don't have to know until that explodes. I don't have to know that the fish are dying. I don't have to know that the coral reefs are bleached. I don't have to know that the the Amazon rainforest is burning. I don't. I don't have to know any of those things until the flood comes or the earthquake or the famine or the drought and it comes really near me and then oh maybe I should have been paying
1: attention I'm conscious of the the sort of the idea the the, the very african idea that informs the work of the foundation and perhaps much of your theology as certainly you described it there that i that idea of ubuntu um i wonder if you could say a little bit about that because i know for those people who have come to greenbelt for a long long long, long time that's been an idea that was introduced into greenbelt's thinking as a festival at the time of the apartheid struggle gaining global attention um But what does that mean uh, and how does it connect to your Christian theology?
2: As a Christian, I think that Ubuntu is a a clear expression of of Christian faith, that we are intimately interdependent. Ubuntu is described as the essence of humanity, our humanness, Um, and as human beings, we don't get away from each other. We don't actually get away from our interdependence. Um, there's, 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 no, there's no way to do that. There's nowhere for us to go that is away from our need for each other. And that, that is the Wundu, we need each other. It's been absolutely
0: fascinating talking to you and you've had such a such a life and have such a story. I wonder what advice you would give now to your younger self.
2: <laughs> what advice would I give to my younger self? I don't know if I I'd, I'd dare to advise her. <laughs> 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 she was so damn headstrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy the journey. I think I only got to be here because of going through what I went through on my way here. And so there's nothing that I would take from her, um, you know, all of the mistakes and the, I don't know. I think I liked her, yeah, I like her. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think I've amassed that much wisdom to be able to say, hey, "Here, have this; it'll make your journey easier."
0: I think that's quite a comforting thing in 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 itself. You know, to to say everything that you go through is just is part of your story. Try and enjoy it, and it will lead you to where you need to be. Hmm.
1: I love the idea of you being able to look back and say, oh yeah, I like her. <laughs> <laughs> so many of us carry around these sort of like regrets and thinking, oh no, how on earth was I really like that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, don't, it, I it's not that I didn't do stupid things as a younger person, I did, I did a lot of really stupid things. But I can look back and say, yeah, that was stupid. But I kind of had to experience it to be here.
1: When you came to speak at Greenbelt, we loved having you. And at that time, you were speaking to your book about that was all about forgiveness. <laughs> and um, you know, uh, many of us around the world have have looked to the ministry of your mother and father, and and then the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, etc. And we've seen sort of like a central thread of forgiveness that has been there. Mm-hmm. And then, then we hear you saying that you can look back at your younger self having made all those mistakes and think, but, you know, that's, that was me. That's, that's what brought me here. And where does forgiveness, is forgiveness as central to all that sort of sense of being at home in your own skin and identity?
2: We're not condemned to be the worst expression of ourselves. That is no part of our faith, our Faith is that we are constantly invited to be the fulfillment of God's dream. And do we get it wrong? Yes. Will we get it wrong again? Yes. But if there's no forgiveness, then we may as well stop here.
1: Thank you. It's been so lovely talking to you, Umpo, and thank you for your time. Mm,
2: Thank you both. It's been lovely talking
1: with you. Did you enjoy that?
0: Wonderful woman to talk to.
1: So much for us to get into. There was one point in the conversation where Umpo was describing growing up under the system of apartheid in South Africa And you came in and you asked her, you said to her, wow, what you've just said sounds really similar to the things that I've seen in Israel-Palestine. That, that, that really struck you, didn't it?
0: Yeah, there was, she was talking about the signs that, you know, before you went into these kind of black townships in South Africa, that there would be these signs saying that you cannot go here, turn around. I think in, in, on the way from Israel into Palestine, they also say, like, trespassers will be shot or something to those effects. But what they do is they stop people from seeing the reality of that situation
1: and all those she described all those different permits that you can get after different amounts of time if you uh, you know all this very complex bureaucracy around who could go where with whom and why and all that sort of stuff that that sounded felt quite familiar too
0: yeah it's it's difficult i find it difficult to completely understand if i'm honest and i read all these different stories every every little bit you read about it it's it's there's just so much. There's so much and you can't get your head around it. It's it's all consuming. She was completely right, all consuming.
1: When I was young and apartheid first came to my attention and I tried to understand it a little bit and I was reading and watching various stuff that was coming out uh, from South Africans trying to tell the story, I was left with the feeling... There's no way that you can get through this because it's so dominant and so controlling and so complicated that you're never going to dismantle this. And yet, apartheid in South Africa was dismantled. And I find that really, really hopeful in a way. Do you see what I mean? It felt so completely there forever. And yet it's gone. It went.
0: How did it go? Was there like one moment? Was there... Like did someone just declare it over? Like I I don't actually know how that ended.
1: I am hopeless at history and shady on detail. So I can't really tell you, Catherine. <laughs> but I think one of the things I would say about apartheid in South Africa, but there was there was genuinely a global consensus that grew around the fact that this was just not on. And South Africa became regarded as a pariah state. It became you know the global community looked in on it and thought no way and you know sanctions and boycotts everything was going on Every, we all stopped buying fruit and, and produce from south africa international sports people stopped going there to perform, to play and compete there was a real big global consensus around the fact that this was not right and that put the government under such pressure that they they eventually, they couldn't survive. They couldn't cope without that global connection and support in a way. That was, I'm not saying that was everything, but that was certainly a part of it.
0: Umpo uh, was an ordained minister in in a church in South Africa and then um, fell in love and married a woman and therefore gave back her license.
1: You know, despite the fact that theologically and personally that was clearly very frustrating and painful for her she was very generous and warm about her local bishop who didn't demand it of her in a sense or you know didn't just write to her and say you know you're out came to visit her and she said she surrendered her license of her own free will rather than have him demand it of her and he said that I really hope and I regard this as a temporary measure. I hope to be able to give you this licence back one day.
0: I think things will change. I think they're going in that direction, actually. I don't know how long it will take to get there, which is the sad thing.
1: I mean, hers is a high-profile case because of who she is, uh, where she's coming from, the public attention that is on her family and stuff. But, of course, her experience is what thousands, millions of people experience when they're trying to be active members of the church around the world, if they're gay, is they have this, what Umpo what described as a dubious welcome.
0: Yeah, you're welcome, but...
1: And you know, uh, she described it as being asked to engage in a perpetual lie. I, you know, last week on the podcast, we were saying that the best of faith encourages people to be free. And yet, when it comes to LGBT people in the church they're being asked to tell a lie about who they Mm. are so not free
0: yeah come and join us give yourself completely over to god and in service of your faith not that part not that part over there leave that at the door if you don't talk about it it might be okay but leave it over there It's interesting that I and I heard it I've heard this from speaking to other people who are ordained in the church, talking about how when you do get ordained, it's like you become something else. And it doesn't matter whether you have that licence, whether you're standing in a church, you have always you are always changed. You are always that person, whether or not people around you are letting you be or not. So and I think there's something really interesting about that and this kind of front dinner table ministry the fact that you don't need those kind of structures around you in order to do the right thing to live in faith to serve
1: when i was little i grew up in this little baptist church and one of the key things that my grandma and granddad would talk about and this church in general would talk about was this idea of the priesthood of all believers which is an umpo mentioned that again which is a complicated way of saying exactly what you're saying You don't need all the structures and the fancy clothes and the titles. If you believe, if you have a faith, we all have the ability and the duty to just get on and serve and do the right thing and to love others and and to make a difference. And that's tremendously liberating. You know, no matter what the institution is telling us, no matter its foibles and its complexities and its hang ups, we can in a sense despite all that just get on and do the right thing which can be really difficult but i think that at greenbelt that's what i i almost value the most is a whole community of people who are saying despite everything i still believe and i still want to make a difference that is i find that really really hopeful and moving
0: that's a really strong faith as well isn't it because i guess like one of the easiest things to do in that kind of situation and understandable things to do in that situation is to walk away and to say, this isn't for me. But that personal faith must be really strong to go, I'll carry on in spite of all of this. It was really interesting she talked about the fact that I think when you were talking about whether your faith was personal or kind of political or societal, and she said... um, if it's all about you, then it's not Christianity. Like those aren't the questions that you're going to be asked when you kind of go to those pearly gates. It's not going to be what robe did you wear? How many times a day did you pray? Did you use any blasphemous words? It's going to be, did you give water to somebody who was thirsty? Did you help the sick?
1: And that really connected with that whole South African idea of Ubuntu, which, um, her father desmond tutu talks about a lot and which influences a whole bunch of um wonderful african and south african leaders is this idea of we are all one another's keepers we're all bound up with one another our humanness is dependent on the liberty and humanness of someone else we're not isolated we're in this together
0: and here's the thing that I've learned over the many years of working for Greenbelt, is whenever you kind of see those Christian ideals, they're not uh, fluffy, dreamy things. They're, they're reality. Like, we talked a lot about, um, I think in the first podcast, about inequality and how um, that affects everybody around you. Like if you have an unequal society, eventually you will be affected by it, your health, your well-being, the life around you. If you don't look out for the people around you, that's going to be at your front door eventually. Um, and so the best way to live, even if you're going to live selfishly, the best way to live is to look after the people around you and to stand up for the people that you see are being unfairly treated or oppressed. <laughs>
1: something that umpo mentioned a few times she described privilege as being this idea of not knowing not needing to know or not needing to see other circumstances other people how how what you do is making an impact on other people so obviously growing up in apartheid south africa she said you know there were people from cape town who had never ever been to soweto wouldn't know how people lived in the townships at all And you and I, having visited Israel-Palestine, we know as well that there's, you know, people don't know how the Palestinians are having to live or being made to live. They genuinely don't really know or understand, not in any great detail. And then Umpo was connecting that with all sorts of issues. What she was saying about climate change. If you don't really, if it doesn't really impact you and you don't know it because it doesn't, it's not like there on your doorstep or outside your window, you know, that, that is the, that's the privilege of of not of not knowing you can just carry on just doing your own thing
0: you know i think we talked on the last podcast about the latest bombing of gaza and how i tried to stay really active and involved when that was happening and what i felt and it almost makes me ashamed to feel this because compared to the people that were living in Gaza, my feelings are like nothing compared to what they were going through. But I felt emotionally exhausted. It's it's hard to be seeing and hearing and engaged with situations that are so painful for a long period of time. It's easier to dip in and then to dip out and forget about it. It's hard to stay engaged and to listen to all those that kind of stuff. And I wonder whether we have the societal structure around us to enable us to to engage with those ideas that are and there's problems in the world that are hard I do think it's privilege completely but I also do see that it's difficult
1: yeah and and here's the thing about that Catherine I so relate to that And I think that part of that difficulty that that you're perhaps you're experiencing right now, and I'm sure others are now, is that we are quite isolated right now. Um, You know, we're having to live apart from each other. Um, We're not part of communities in the same way that we normally are. Um, What I'm trying to say is if I look back to times in my life when I've really actively really engaged with something, I've wanted to know more about it, I've wanted to get completely engaged with it and do something about it it's always been as part of groups and communities it's never been on my own i don't think that you can do those sort of things on your own because i do think it's emotionally too too much for you to bear um and that, that again connects back to this idea of you know if christianity is about you or is if faith is about you only it isn't christianity or it not a genuine faith i think that we're almost made to 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 be human in groups of people and it's impossible to be fully human on your own even to want to to empathize even to want to do the the right thing is so difficult on your own and i think you need people around you and we're missing that right now wonderful guest and perhaps we can get ampo back to the festival one day perhaps you might even bring a dad
0: That'd be great.
1: Who are we talking to next week on the podcast, Catherine?
0: Next week, we're talking to Andrew Copson, who is the chief executive of Humanists UK.
1: Well, we thought that in a series that was looking at belief, we needed to talk to a humanist as well to find out more about what humanism is about. And uh, it was a very, very interesting conversation.
0: Super interesting. And you said I sound quite clever, so I'm excited to listen to that.
1: We always like it when people uh, respond to the podcast to tell us what you're thinking. You can email us on stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. You can also let us know what you're thinking on social media.
0: Our Twitter is at Greenbelt. Our Instagram is at Greenbelt Festival. And we're Greenbelt Festival on Facebook too.
1: Yeah. And if you want to um, get notifications about the podcast coming out and get a bit more in depth, um, some links and references and resources, we do a Friday email uh, that you can sign up to greenbelt.org.uk forward slash podcast. We'd like to say a few thank yous to the people who help us make these podcasts.
0: Thank you to Daisy Wedge Jarrett on the staff team who helps us produce this podcast. And thank you to Paul Truman again on the staff team who helps us frame the episode
1: and to Josh and Jake on our Recorded Talks uh, volunteer team. They help us edit this whole thing and put it together, make it sound half-decent, so thank you very much to them.
0: And one big thank you to uh, Lee Baines from Lee Baines and the Glorifiers for the use of his track, which we use in our titles. Um, It's called I Can Change, and we are forever grateful to Lee Baines and the Glorifiers for everything they do. I didn't know they were teaching white privilege in, in rs studies.
1: All I can say is when I talk to my kids about, about these sort of things, um, it's one of the things in the curriculum and it's, it's one of the things they're taught that they find most interesting is when they learn about colonialism and privilege. They find it really interesting and they do find it quite upsetting. Not upsetting as in a way that they cry themselves to sleep at night, but they, it does disturb them and I don't think that's a bad thing i think that's a good thing and i would rather them you know if umpo was saying that privilege is about not knowing i'd rather that they know and and, and feel a little bit sad
0: I think it's okay to tell people that the world is broken. And I think it was, was it Ben Kaplan we were talking to? And it's like a very Jewish idea that even in moments of happiness, like that moment where you have two people getting married, that they would smash a glass to be like, but the world is still broken and we've still got work to do. (laughs) And I really like that. I think that that is almost missing too much, trying to protect people and not show how broken this world is.
1: Absolutely. To quote Leonard Cohen before Ben Kaplan, "There's a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in." Who are we talking to next week on the podcast, Catherine? Do you know who we've got lined up? <laughs> it's Andrew.
0: Next week we're talking to Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're in my (laughs) ear
1: of course you know it's on the list
0: (laughs) Uh, next week we're talking to Andrew Copson who's the chief executive of Humanists UK